Oliver Libby is the chair and co-founder of the Resolution Project, a global nonprofit that identifies and empowers undergraduate students around the world and across the United States. Supported by the Resolution Project's global network of resources, these students are inspired to launch new social ventures and comprise a growing generation of leaders committed to social responsibility. Founded in 2007, the Resolution Project has empowered hundreds of young people to effect local solutions in their communities, impacting over a million people worldwide. Libby is also co-founding managing director of the venture firm Hatsumemos Libby, which gives him a cross-sector view on galvanizing entrepreneurship and building entrepreneurial ecosystems. So it's interesting. One of the most important parts of being an ecosystem creator is to focus on the part of the ecosystem that you can do really well and partner aggressively. And what I mean by that is find out who else is doing work around this and build a relationship and start sharing those amazing entrepreneurs with the other organizations. So I'm really happy to report Resolution Project's been able to build these amazing relationships with dozens upon dozens of other players in the space. And it's because really we do best when we're working together. Libby joined the Avi podcast to discuss his inspiration to co-found the Resolution Project, his belief in the power of collaborative social entrepreneurship, and how students can affect unprecedented amounts of change across the globe. Please enjoy our conversation with Oliver Libby, moderated by Ivy's Social Impact Director, Anna Bay Sullivan. This episode is brought to you by Emerge 212 Office Space Elevated, New York City's premier operator full-service office suites. Emerge 212's fully furnished offices are sleek, sophisticated, and high-tech, perfect for seasoned entrepreneurs who want to put their best foot forward, companies seeking to launch a New York City team, or businesses looking to secure an address in the city with virtual office capabilities. With locations near Grand Central, Rockefeller Plaza, and Columbus Circle, Emerge 212 enables companies to elevate their meeting and business experience through high-end, customized spaces, so your business can focus on operating, not operations. To begin working out of Manhattan's premier office space, or to reserve a conference room for an upcoming event, visit Emerge212.com. Mention Ivy and you'll receive two months of complimentary rent on a 13-month lease. My name is Oliver Libby. Uh, I am the managing director of a venture firm called Hatsumemos Libby, and also one of the co-founders and chair of the board of the Resolution Project, which is a global social venture accelerator for young people around the world. Can you tell us about the Resolution Project? The Resolution Project uh, was started just a little under 10 years ago. And what we do is we go all around the world and we find inspiring undergraduate students at conferences that span the globe. We run social venture challenges, which are competitions to identify brand new social entrepreneurs at college age. And we fund them, but we also provide them with mentorship, with pro bono services, with connectivity with each other, uh, basically everything that you would want if you were going to launch a new social enterprise. And so what you get at Resolution Project is a global community in almost 70 countries now of hundreds of young people who have local solutions that are working right now in their communities, impacting well over a million lives so far. Great. And what inspired you to found the nonprofit. Two of my best friends from college and I used to do uh, that nerdiest of pursuits, uh, Model UN. Uh, and so we had a lot of fun doing that. I, I did a lot of Model UN in college. And uh, it's an exceptional skill set that you develop when you're doing uh, that sort of simulation work. Uh, but I will say that um, formative experience, though it was, we kind of felt like there was something left on the table. And we graduated from school, we started our careers in the private sector, uh, all three of us, uh, 
And we would get together from time to time and reminisce about the old days. And the idea that started to germinate from that was really focused around going back to that original conference called the World Model UN that we used to run together and seeing if we could inspire some of the students who were attending the conference in those years uh, to start a social venture or do something that would have an impact. So really we backed into it and uh, it all came from this kind of loyalty to this, this idea that young people could start today and maybe even with a small project could learn what it was like uh, to, to help the world and kind of have that enter their character. And uh, I will tell you, we did a lot of research. We went back to the conference several times as uh, and maybe we were five years out of school, but that made us aged alumni uh, for the undergrads who were running the conference. And we talked to a lot of students. We did classic participatory development. And we said, do you have ideas? Uh, do you want to do something? And the overwhelming response was yes. And the overwhelming feeling we had was that these ideas were really quality. And so we created Resolution Project and uh, kept piloting it for a couple of years. And, and now, you know, almost 70 countries later, uh, turns out the young people are ready to start now. Yeah. Tell us about your uh, experience hearing the term future leaders. So it's funny, we play a game at Resolution sometimes, or at least I do when we're at these conferences. Uh, and we love our conference partners. They're amazing. Um, but one of the things that that is a hallmark of the experience when you have a lot of undergraduate students and some of these conferences cater to thousands of students is that the keynote speaker is giving a speech to future leaders and is referring to everyone in the audience as a future leader or a leader of tomorrow and that might well be true uh, but there's an implicit kind of subtext there which is but not yet um, but you know you're still learning now uh, wait um, and, and look, I'm the biggest believer in the fact that impact can increase over time and that experience is a powerful, powerful ingredient to success. But fundamentally, young people have some of the best viewpoints into their communities. They have some of the best ideas and with far fewer resources than you might think, they can get started. So when we heard leaders of tomorrow, we said yes and also leaders of today. What are some of those resources that are key to foster an ecosystem of social entrepreneurship. I sometimes think about uh, fostering this sort of ecosystem, or at least the journey for one person as a journey or a road trip. Um, and when you're going to do a road trip, uh, you need an itinerary, you need a plan. Uh, you might need some friends along. You certainly need fuel in the tank of the car and, you know, some food and water along the way. So there's a lot of ingredients. And, and I think that you can find analogy to those things in the ingredients for an entrepreneur. So um, we start with a small grant. Um, because you need fuel in the tank, so uh, you can't go anywhere without that. Uh, frankly, the funding isn't the fun part, and it's uh, it's something that we think is ultimately findable for good ideas. Uh, but we think that also one of the critical things about Resolution Project is we're the first funder. Uh, so this is a rule with us, and it's something that all of our fellows have bonded with us over, which is that um, I've always loved to say everyone loves to be first to be second. So everyone loves to follow the first funder. We will be the first funder. So you get that little fuel in the tank, but then there's so much more that you need. If you're in a, in a car that's empty and you're going on a road trip and you don't know where you're going, that's pretty sad. So we also help them with mentors. We assign two mentors per team of fellows. Um, and those mentors are along the ride. Uh, and they're there with you. And we train those mentors not only to ask about and support the venture, but also the entrepreneur. So if they're having a bad week in school, we're there for them, right? It's not just about the next uh, funding round or the next business model or the next PowerPoint deck. And so 
uh, I think that entrepreneurship mentorship is a critical component. Then there's free services. So services are really important. In fact, a lot of uh, emerging entrepreneurs find it really hard to get a, a law firm or an accounting firm or regulatory advice or engineering advice. Uh, and we have lots of partners and volunteers who will do those things. And so uh, what can be very expensive or just plain impossible for a young entrepreneur to find oftentimes, particularly if they're not in like a major city university, we provide those things. Um, and then last but not least, I'll tell you, I think uh, we were surprised to find that the number one thing that resolution fellows feel is important about the fellowship is that they're not lonely anymore and they're connected to each other and they're connected to us. And somebody was the first believer and that connectivity, that sense that they're not in this alone, that makes a big difference. Could you tell us about a success story of one of your fellows? Sure. We like to play a, another fun game at resolution, which is, uh, People will often ask us what our favorite fellow is, and I always say I don't have a favorite fellow, but if you have a favorite area of social impact, I'd be happy to tell you about a story. Um, I don't know if you have a favorite area of social impact. Sure, health. Sure, so we have some incredible health ventures. Um, we have a venture, a uh, number of young women who um, noted that there was less impactful malaria prevention work being done in South Africa. Um, and so they started a venture called One Sun Health that uh, brought malaria awareness, prevention, education, uh, but also uh, a whole set of best practices around net sewing um, to the very northern border of South Africa. Uh, and so that's been, One Sun Health has been a great success. Um, you know, I mentor a couple of fellows that I can talk about as well. Uh, there's an amazing young woman, Rose Wang, who now lives in San Francisco. Uh, she runs a business called Six Foods. Um, their first product is something called the Chirps. Uh, chirps chips. Uh, chirps are basically, you know, if I put them in a bowl on your table, you would think of them as kind of like a, a Tostito, uh, but actually they're made with cricket meal. Um, what's really cool about that is that crickets are both fairly healthy for you with uh, good nutrition, protein, and also much less energy and water intensive to grow. Um, but you know, the assumption that Six Food made, which I think is really smart, is that the American buying public is maybe less likely to just fry up a cricket and eat it, or maybe doesn't want to just eat a cricket bar. And so making a good old American food like a chip uh, or a chocolate chirp cookie, for example, uh, would be a great product. And so uh, Rose and her team have been unbelievably successful. Their first grant with us was less than $3,000 way back uh, at the initial competition. And they have since been funded by Mass Challenge. They've become Echoing Green Fellows. Uh, they just won uh, Shark Tank and Mark Cuban invested. So if you're at JFK Airport, you can find Chirps Chips right on the shelf. Tell us about the other players like Echoing Green and Mass Challenge and uh, some of the other networks that might be uh, helpful after they've gone through the resolution pro uh, project experience. So it's interesting. One of the most important parts of being an ecosystem creator is to focus on the part of the ecosystem that you can do really well and partner. 
and partner aggressively. And what I mean by that is find out who else is doing work around this and build a relationship um, and start sharing those amazing entrepreneurs with the other organizations. So uh, I think it's been interesting for me to note as a venture professional that in the private sector, uh, venture firms are constantly calling each other. Uh, so you know, you'll have something in your portfolio and you'll pick up the phone and call another firm that might do a later stage type round and say, gee, would you look at this? It's really good. Uh, in the social sector, uh, that is less common. Um, and a lot of that is because actually many of these organizations find themselves in funding competition or at least perceived funding competition. And so there's kind of a that's my fellow or that's my impact. Um, so I'm really happy to report Resolution Project's been able to build these amazing relationships with uh, with Echoing Green, with Ashoka U, uh, with the Unreasonable Institute, uh, literally dozens upon dozens of other players in the space. And it's because really we do best when we're working together and we view this as a, as a pathway. So we know exactly where we stand, which is launching new undergrads into social impact. Uh, but we're not going to give out a hundred thousand dollar grant. Uh, we want to find those who do and present them with the best possible pipeline of great young entrepreneurs. What is the situation in terms of matching funding needs with funders and the funding levels of those funders? So one of the things we've learned about funding is actually a little goes a long way. Um, I say even in the venture world, there's a bit of an addiction these days to throwing as much capital as possible at the good ideas. Um, and I think it's really about finding what the right amount of capital is and also the right source. Uh, Resolution gives a very small amount to our fellows. Uh, so we start with on average about two or three thousand uh, dollars. You'd be totally blown away with what young people can do with that. I mean, we have a young man, Juan Dile, uh, who is in Durban, South Africa, who basically with our grant and a very few others that followed on, was able to build uh, basically affordable, but very stylish and functional housing for uh, people who live in, in the uh, the slums, uh, what they call the townships in Durban, where he grew up. And so, you know, that didn't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and if you estimated it and did, you know, engineering and architectural designs, the, uh, you know, kind of classic American way that would have cost that much. So you'd be amazed. I mean, I think it's about matching up the right amount of capital and then also finding the right source. Um, and so resolution is a great launch source. But then as people are scaling, there's deeper pockets or uh, folks who will follow on that are much more capable at that. So um, that's how we found uh, a way to thread the needle on that. Are there challenges in that area now? Is there room for improvement in terms of matching the needs and the funding levels available? I think that there's, well, first of all, there's always a challenge around first funder. Right. So everyone's always looking for that launch funder, the anchor funder, the one who kind of breaks the door down and says it's OK to back this idea. Um, I'm not sure that I would advocate that it should ever be easy to do that. Um, but I do think a couple of things about that. The first is uh, people think about first funding as too expensive. So um, if if your check size is one hundred thousand dollars or even a million dollars, which some people do write those checks, um, you're probably not supposed to be the first money in, but but you've got to find enough people who will do 5000 or $10,000 to get the ball rolling on that. So I think it's a, a little bit of a right size issue. And sometimes people, you know, it's like a plant, you can actually drown it in water, you know, you can drown in a new enterprise in, in too much capital, uh, particularly if it comes with a lot of strings attached. I think the other thing that's really important, we care a lot about this at Resolution is 
the the bridge into capital is not the same for everybody. So if you happen to be lucky enough to be in a major American university town that's in one of these innovation hubs, uh, sure, there's a lot of funders running around. There's pitch competitions. There's a lot of ways that you can access funding. If you're doing this in Appalachia or in you know Uganda uh, or Nepal. Um, or, you know, St. Louis even, uh, it could be really hard to find people who even understand early stage funding and are willing to take that risk. Um, and, and also you might find people who are willing to write a check, but can they add value in other ways? Are they really strategic funders? I think that the, uh, going kind of global on this and really getting into, uh, communities of need with access to funding as something that you provide is really important. We need more people doing that. Uh, how would you define social entrepreneurship? There isn't one definition for social entrepreneurship. At Resolution, we take an expansive view of it, especially from a structural standpoint. So I would argue that social entrepreneurship includes for-profit, not-for-profit, hybrid, benefit corporations, lots of the new structures. In fact, we sometimes have uh, social ventures that are not even incorporated because maybe they don't need to be if they're in a rural community doing education. Why do you need a corporate structure? Uh, so we take a, a very broad view, but we do believe that a social enterprise has to have a few defining features. It's not a one-time thing, so it's like a project. It has to be a going concern. It has to have some sort of a business model, even if it's a charity. It has to have some source of sustainable funding. And sustainable funding could easily be donations. I'm not saying that that's bad in any way, but if you're going to be funded by donations, you got to make a good argument for why you think that's going to be sustainable and scalable, uh, which it can very well be, as you know, the uh, International Rescue Committee would argue, right, the donation funded. Um, and, and I think the other thing about it is that it has to have some sort of like solutions oriented approach. So um, something that has really got a thesis and that can be implemented and possibly scaled as well. Last thing I'll say on that as well is that it should have measurable impact. Whatever those impacts you're trying to measure are and you can define what those are, you should know what it is you're trying to affect and through a social enterprise be able to measure the, the, the actual effect you're having on the ground. Let's talk about entrepreneurship uh, and where the, the hubs are in the world uh, and what factors um, really lead to their uh, those ecosystems that are successful. So most of the entrepreneurship hubs in the world, you would probably be able to name. Uh, and there are a number of ingredients uh, from, you know, easy access to capital, uh, universities, major university systems or of significant government uh, infrastructure uh, that lead to an entrepreneurial ecosystem. Entrepreneurs tend to come from places that have decent levels of education. Um, I want to be really clear about something and maybe a little controversial too. Like, I think the word entrepreneur has kind of been hijacked. So my grandfather came back from World War II uh, and went to school under the GI Bill and then started a uh, pharmaceutical packaging company uh, called Libby Labs. Uh, Libby Laboratories today employs you know several dozen people. It's a great business. It's not a unicorn. It's not going public, but it's a really great enterprise. And he was certainly an entrepreneur. So I think we've got to also kind of reclaim this word and understand that there absolutely is an amazing group of you know high technology, high growth entrepreneurs who have, will have billion dollar exits, but that's not the only kind of entrepreneurship. And in fact, I'd make a really strong argument that uh, that's not the principal type of entrepreneur that most people can aspire to be or should to have a really healthy society and a really healthy economy for America and for the world. 
And is entrepreneurship increasing or decreasing in the U.S.? So if uh, we're sitting here in New York, uh, in New York, it feels like everybody is starting a business and every college kid has a startup. And uh, that is uh, actually just not true. Um, the uh, numbers are pretty staggering and really stark. Uh, we are, you know, probably 30 percent less. We start 30 percent fewer businesses now than we did even five or six years ago. Uh, there's been a sharp decline in new business starts in the U.S. And that's actually really concerning uh, because, of, well, for a few reasons. The first is new businesses each year account for something like 15% of new jobs. They're not all going to survive, but actually a lot of those jobs uh, are really important to local communities. Um, and I think the other thing that's really important to understand about this is if you only start high growth potential tech startups, the failure rate is extremely high. So if you start a thousand tech startups, you might get three or four that really monetize in a serious way and create a lot of jobs. And by the way, a lot fewer jobs than the same size companies in the old economy. Um, if you start a thousand small businesses, so coffee shops or laundromats or small textile shops or whatever it might be, you're likely to keep a whole lot more of those running, employing a few people, creating kind of a fulcrum of sustainability within a local a local uh, uh, community. So uh, I think it's really important for us to think about America's entrepreneurship broadly as a strategy for our entire country and to recognize the fact that we're starting fewer new businesses than we have in a long time. Are there ways to increase entrepreneurship? Absolutely. Well, number one, I think there's a lot of different things we need to do to reinvigorate entrepreneurship across the country. Um, and a few of those things have to do just starting with kind of the zeitgeist of entrepreneurship. So we need to reclaim that word from just the Valley-based tech startups. Uh, we need people to think that entrepreneurship is possible. Uh, we need people to aspire to be small business entrepreneurs. Uh, if you pick up Fast Company or TechCrunch and you read about an Elon Musk or a Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, those guys are amazing, but uh, very, very, very few people, even amongst the best and smartest of our country, can aspire to have their type of success with their type of company. We need people to think that it's really cool to start a business and to employ 20 people and revitalize an entire community and bring some local color and some creativity and some individuality to those communities. And that's incredibly important. And that starts in school and it starts in communities and it starts in the press and the media and what we glorify. And I think local entrepreneurs uh, are worth uh, putting right out front as something that we need in this country. But there's more ingredients that are really important. Um, access to capital. And I don't just mean uh, raising equity in the way that venture capital funds uh, fund. I think it's access to debt. Um, a lot of businesses, particularly small businesses, need revolving credit. They might need payroll financing. There's a lot of different things that they need just uh, uh, from the capital markets. Um, there's also a need for entrepreneurship mentorship uh, and for a lot of expertise. People who've done this before, being able to come into communities and, and train people to be entrepreneurs. In short, there's an enormous amount we can do to make what is a very tough thing, starting a new business, much easier. Um, and I'll just I'll highlight uh, there's a few community venture firms like uh, Rising Tide Capital or Emeritus Ventures uh, that are doing work outside of the major hubs that are really worth looking at and replicating. What role do co-working spaces and accelerators and incubators play in social entrepreneurship? 
So I think that the early stage ecosystem for social entrepreneurs, accelerators, incubators, co-working spaces, it's all really an important part of the system. I think we need to view, and those organizations, resolution included, need to view themselves as, as a step along the pathway. Um, and also about uh, making sure we have a responsibility to ensure that we have a diverse base of entrepreneurs, and I mean diversity in all of its flavors. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there's an incredibly important um, selection and onboarding role that these organizations play as the first stop for an emerging entrepreneur. That connectivity that we talked about before, the idea of making sure that accelerators and incubators do put their entrepreneurs in front of the later sources of financing, the opportunities to grow and exit. Uh, I think that that's really important. And uh, you mentioned co-working spaces. I mean, I think co-working is incredibly cool. Um, and it also provides uh, a much safer environment than signing a long-term lease, for example, for emerging entrepreneurs. I would um, caution that I think kind of the WeWork style American uh, innovation hub type co-working isn't really available to a lot of emerging market social entrepreneurs, for example, but um, even they are finding some great solutions. There's a resolution fellow in Ghana who's uh, working on an incubator for young African social entrepreneurs, and we're really excited about that. What are the most important qualities for a successful entrepreneur? So everybody has an answer for this. Uh, I have some things that I definitely look for, both in my firm and at Resolution. Um, and, and by the way, actually, uh, whether it be a college-age social entrepreneur or a entrepreneur in New York who's looking to scale a tech business, uh, these things tend to translate really well. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things you really want from someone is a keen observer. And what I mean by that is not someone who's not going to take action, but someone who has observed a problem, deeply understood it, and created a solution that's differentiated and that will actually help the problem. Uh, so you really want someone when you're sitting across from an entrepreneur to make the case to you that they have been an observer, that they understand that problem, that they've found the solution. So that's number one, uh, someone who's attentive, right? Uh, the next thing you want is someone who has grit. And I use that word advisedly. Um, grit means that if you try and try and try, uh, you're not just going to keep bashing your head against the wall, but you are going to have a stick to itiveness. You're going to keep at it. Um, entrepreneurship is unbelievably hard. If you, and I'm sure that many listeners have uh, read bi biographies or listened to podcasts of the leading entrepreneurs, they all have the horror stories of the things that happened along the way. It will 100% happen. There will be dark days and you got to be able to get through it. And that's just a grittiness that I think is really important. Some people call it hustle, grit, whatever you want, but that quality is super, super important. I think the other thing that's really cool um, is uh, to look for is, is urgency. Um, it, it's not rushing. But it's the idea that the entrepreneur is on top of the things that they need to be on top of, that they're moving as fast as possible, that they that you feel that they are committed to getting this done as quick as possible because it always takes longer than you want. Uh, we like to say everything moves to the right on the schedule, uh, but someone who's proceeding with urgency is, is really gonna be able to get things done. And the last thing I'll say is uh, I myself have been a serial co-founder as I co-founded Resolution Project with George Seattis and Howard Levine and a team of dedicated people really early on. I co-founded Hatsumemos Libby with Eric Hatsumemos, who's our chairman and name is on the door. Um, it is really important to have someone uh, as an entrepreneur be either part of a team or really quick to create a team. Entrepreneurship is super lonely. 
It is super hard to do alone. In fact, nobody ever has. If you look at all the best, including the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs, there's always the Waz or you know the, the other person who was there the whole time or the small team. So that team orientation, the ability to create a community quickly in that enterprise is a defining feature of successful entrepreneurs. Why do you think entrepreneurship is declining? So I think entrepreneurship has gotten very hard for a number of reasons. First of all, and this is really important, most American families have fewer than two paychecks of savings. When you're about to start a new business, you're going to take a leap. If the bungee cord is not really tight to your ankle, you aren't going to take that leap. And two paychecks is not enough risk mitigation to start something new. Um, it's also really capital intensive. So not only are you thinking about risk mitigation, but you've got to actually invest in a new business. Um, it's very hard for pe people, particularly outside of the hubs, to scrap up the capital necessary to get something started. I'll say also, uh, we talked about this before, but the idea of entrepreneurship uh, referring to a very specific subset of entrepreneurs means that people don't really conceive of that thing that they might have wanted to do, that coffee shop or uh, that you know pharmaceutical packaging company uh, as really an entrepreneurial pursuit worth tackling. Is it really that cool? Am I an entrepreneur? Am I just a small business guy? Um, and I think it's really important. And I think one of the other things is um, it is incredibly hard for a lot of communities to conceive of themselves as entrepreneurs. Um, we work a lot with uh, women entrepreneurs, with entrepreneurs of color, with veterans. And there's a step of just saying, yes, this is possible. Yes, your ideas are awesome. Yes, you should absolutely go and apply for those programs, that funding, come and talk to us. Um, that's an interstitial step that um, some of the existing communities of entrepreneurs don't have to go through. I would say one more thing about this, which is that uh, anyone who started a business knows that regulation is really complicated and is really tough. I'm the biggest fan of good regulation, and I think it's really important. But I think one of the things we need to recognize is that the more support and mentorship that emerging entrepreneurs have in terms of dealing with regulation and getting through it and not drowning in it, uh, the better, because that can be a real a kind of real freezing effect on new business. Which industries are changing the fastest and which will be put out of business? So I think the answer to that question is that every industry is changing. Uh, a lot of people keep talking about this wave of change from automation and AI and all this other stuff that's coming down the pike as a future thing, but the waves are already hitting, uh, undoubtedly speaking. And it's not just focused on the industrial legacy jobs of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So, you know, for sure, if you walk the factory floor at Tesla, uh, you're not going to see a lot of people. Um, it's actually pretty eerie, um, but it's pretty amazing also. Uh, but I think the thing that you might think less about is the fact that far, far fewer paralegals are being hired by law firms, that asset managers like hedge funds are so much more reliant on algorithms and computers now. So there's not really a safe haven. I mean, even doctors, I mean, um, you know, I, I'm always fond of saying the, uh, the Starship Enterprise didn't have all that many doctors because the computer was there and the tricorders were there. Well, IBM Watson is diagnosing at incredibly positive rates against doctors in a lot of medical centers. That's not to say that there's going to be zero doctors left. Don't get me wrong. It's to say that there's not going to be a team of six doctors that walk into your room as you're recovering from whatever your, your illness was. It's going to be a doctor with a lot of technology behind her. 
And uh, I think that's one of the most important things to understand is that there's not really going to be a place to hide. Um, what you really then need to do is to practice that job fitness, to understand that the sh shifting sands of innovation are going to make fitness for a number of careers and a relevancy of skill sets the much more important thing to do rather than self-identifying as a lawyer forever. How can we best prepare and educate young leaders and workers for industries and jobs that don't exist yet? A lot of people talk about this, right? They talk about the fact that the the robots are coming, uh, that automation is going to destroy all the jobs. And then some people come back and they say, no, 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 you don't understand. That's never really happened before. The boys cry, cried wolf in the past and it was all wrong. And that creative destruction is going to bring about new jobs that are you know, unimagined. Um, I think the problem is actually a little different than that, which is uh, it's a velocity problem. Um, so when most American families have fewer than two paychecks in the bank, the question is, if you lose your job, uh, how quickly can you reskill or upskill into that new job? So if uh, driverless cars, for example, put a bunch of truck drivers out of out of work, and there's millions of truck drivers, 3.2 million, uh, and we have 1.1 million cybersecurity jobs available on LinkedIn, that's awesome for the economy, so to speak, but not quite so much for the truck driver who has to figure out how to become a high school grad who is behind the wheel of a truck uh, and turn himself or herself into a cybersecurity professional. Now, here's the thing. I think truck drivers are more than capable of doing that, but it's a question of time. How do we provide the on-ramp for that truck driver to get that education and survive long enough to get it uh, and to get that next job? So a few prescriptions for that. I mean, look, we're going to have to, first of all, think a lot about education in this country. The idea of a graduation date followed by a 50-year career is just ridiculous. Um, there's room for that. I'm not saying that four-year universities need to go away, but that's just not going to be the way the economy generates most of its workers going forward. We need to think about job fitness the same way we think about our own personal fitness. You don't just stop working out when you graduate from high school or college. You want to stay fit and eat healthy all your life. Well, just the same way with your job, you're going to have maybe seven, eight, nine careers going forward. You got to stay fit. You got to be learning. You got to be reading up on what's next so that if your job gets made obsolete in the increasing pace of innovation, you're ready and flexible to take on that next challenge. And I think that's really important. We need to change the expectations out there. This idea idea that like you go into college debt and then you're going to be ready for the, your career, quote unquote, that's also just obsolete and actually really dangerous. Uh, we need people to think about this as a preparation for careers for your life and where your skills are going to apply to ever changing types of work. And in, in fact, even types of ways you engage with work. So maybe you'll be a contractor at one point, then you'll be an employee at another point, then you'll be a freelancer at another point, and you might volunteer as well. And that whole grouping of things is going to be how you come up with a life of work. Um, I think the last thing I would say is we're going to have to think a lot about the dignity of work uh, in this country. Uh, in fact, most places in the world, you ask someone, uh, you know, what's your name? Where do you come from? What do you do? Well, what do you do is not going to be, I was at General Motors for 40 years and I have a pension plan and a healthcare plan and I conceive of myself as an auto worker. That is simply not going to be the way that you describe yourself going forward in the new economy. So we have to give dignity to skills. We have to give dignity to uh, a blended set of activities that put food on the table and that give you a purpose. And I think that that can be much more than just a job. Could you tell us about your chapters in your life? and the, the pitfalls and pivots along the way. Sure. 
I have actually done very few things in my life um, and I've spent longer at them than I think many people do uh, in this day and age. Um, I uh, went to school and studied national security and military history, um, bizarrely because I came from a family of doctors and scientists and I was never any good at lab work. So the disease that I wanted to cure was conflict. So I figured just the way my dad studied heart disease, I would study war and try and prevent it in the future. And it was really fascinating. And I think there's a lot that I learned from that. Um, I spent a little bit of time working for the US government and then uh, decided to learn about the private sector. Because frankly, if you're uh, hoping to be a leader in the United States, uh, you got to understand the engine that powers the country, which is the private sector and business. Uh, and so I went and, and uh, became a consultant for a number of years. But um, I did that by total happenstance. Uh, I, my college roommate uh, said that I might be a good consultant. And I was like, oh, what is that? Um, and he said, well, you get to advise people on strategy and help them grow things. And I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I would do that. Um, and so I, I kind of ended up backing into uh, um, a consulting firm and spending six years there. Um, and, and I would say, like, in life, you got to try really hard and work really hard, but then you also have to be lucky. My grandfather often used to say, I'd rather be lucky than good, but it's best to be both. Um, so I got really lucky. I ended up um, uh, being matched up with this guy, Eric Hatsamemos, uh, who was a leader at the consulting company I was with. And he and I just bonded and he became a mentor and has, um, you know, I've been working with him for 14 years now. We started our firm together, the venture firm, Hatsamemos Libby, about eight years ago. And uh, that's the next thing that I did. And basically one month apart from starting the venture firm, uh, me and, and George and Howard started the resolution project and those two activities have taken up basically all of my time. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that um, I've often thought about in terms of pitfalls is just that I'm doing emails and meetings and calls all the time. And I actually love that. Um, but, uh, but you know, you, you give up something about that. Um, and I think I've had an amazing you know, family and an amazing group of friends, um, many of whom have actually gotten involved in resolution project or the business, uh, because that's the way I've kind of organized my life. Um, but it's been really fun to build these things and to, to really invest in creating these ecosystems for some inspiring people. How can people best get involved with the resolution project? The resolution project utterly and completely lives and dies on volunteers. And the volunteers can do all sorts of things. The most common volunteer engagement that we have is what's called the guides program. That's our way of talking about mentorship. Uh, the guides work directly with resolution fellows. You actually do kind of a survey. You get paired with a resolution fellow who might speak your language or come from your part of the world or be working in an industry or a topic area that you care a lot about. And once you create that bond, and I can tell you, I mentor eight resolution fellows. It's life changing. Like once you become a mentor for those uh, young inspiring social entrepreneurs, you begin to realize that it is definitely a two-way street. I've learned as much from Darius and Annie and Rose, and it's just been an incredible group of people uh, to learn from. Um, so the guides program is a really great engagement, uh, and uh, we actually train our mentors and all that. So it's, it's a great community. Um, uh, a couple of other things, though, uh, there's uh, host committees for our events. There's subject matter expertise rules, where if you might uh, not want to be a full mentor, but want to give up your expertise uh, to teams when they need you. There's engagements on that. They have a wonderful advisory board as well for folks who are a little bit later on in their careers and um, have a little bit more senior role in their industries. So lots and lots. We have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers, and that is how we do what we do. Great. And what's next for you? What do you see uh, for your future? 
Well, you know, I'm really focused on making sure that Hatsumemos Libby and the Resolution Project uh, grow and succeed. Uh, we are right in the middle of all of that. And uh, I get to build businesses and organizations and support entrepreneurs all day, which is a really lucky and awesome thing. Uh, you know, in the future, uh, I'm someone who's always hoped to run for office. I think that's pretty relevant these days. Um, and so maybe one day, uh, maybe one day you'll see that. Uh, but in the meantime, I think, you know, creating these entrepreneurial ecosystems and helping the economy transition to innovation of the future, that's a pretty good way for me to spend my time. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.